0: Welcome back, gals, ghouls, and badass days of the world. My name is Cass Clark, and I'm joined, as always, with my lovely co-host Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a special guest, Mac. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit of uh, what brought you here today, and your love of horror, and just all the insane amount of things that you do?
1: Yes, my name is Mac Boyle. I think my Twitter bio describes me as a writer slash internet voicey man. And I am the co-host of Beyond the Cabin in the Woods. I think you had my cohort, uh, Kenzie, on on a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also co-host The Holodeck is Broken, a Star Trek rewatch podcast. And by the time this airs, two new podcasts will be up and running. Friendables, two friends talking about Hannibal Lecter with my co-host, Eris O'Reilly. Then also Drunkster Peace Theater, where uh, Eris, uh, another writer I know, Z Lee, and I do drunken dramatic readings so far of Shakespeare plays our first episode will be Romeo and Juliet and by the time this drops it will be out in the world.
2: Who is your main character on Romeo and Juliet? Your main voice acting bit for Romeo and Juliet.
1: We did a, a selection of scenes. We didn't do the full text so it's not a five-hour podcast uh, <laughs> internet. you. <laughs> Don't be alarmed. Z played Romeo and a few other roles. Eris played Juliet and a few other roles. And then I played every other role. Essentially Lon Chaney did. I played a lot. Anybody who died that wasn't in love, that was your boy. Oh, nice. um, as far as horror is concerned, I have spent most of my life trying to get people into universal monster movies with varying levels of success. It, it's never been the greatest gambit when I was single and dating. It's like, <laughs> so, so, like. but have you seen Bride of Frankenstein? Like, that's the question I need to go with first.
0: That was the pickup line right there. That's it, it was.
1: It was like <laughs> I have the full legacy DVD collection back in my dorm room if you want to go uh, see what's up. No one wanted to see what was up. But when his people did, that was special. So I think that's a great just calling card on my horror fandom. I, I would say John Carpenter's Halloween is probably in my top five movies of all time. Shared with Gremlins 2, which is a strange choice, I'll admit. But
0: yeah. You love the Joe Dante, I hear.
1: <laughs> uh, Joe Dante. I, I have a small shrine to Mr. Dante. to Maestro Dante, I think we call him in this house. and uh,
0: Oh, yeah <laughs>
1: Yes, very. Have you seen the the
2: key and peel skit about the making of Gremlins 2? So great. And, and
1: what's so great about that is that Dante tweeted out the YouTube clip of that and said, yep, that's pretty much how it went. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh fantastic well thank you again for joining us today uh, and it's really fitting because we're going to be talking a lot about universal horror monsters later uh, but before we dive in ryan do you want to kick us off with the history of comedic vampires
2: so there's a lot less than i thought Um, I didn't find much in the early films, like 10s to 30s, very few comedic vampires. Really, the first one that I could find was Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein from 1948, which we're going to talk about in depth later. It's one of our breakout movies today. That got followed up by nine Abbott and Costello sequels, some with vampires and worlds, some without them. I didn't find any in the 50s and the 60s, unless you guys know of some.
1: I have one. Yeah, The Fearless Vampire Killers, uh, an early Roman Polanski film, which I thought about trying to track down ahead of recording this podcast, met with even the slightest resistance remembered that it was Roman Polanski and I gave up.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it exists. It's good to know that it's out
2: there somewhere. From
1: 1967. Saturday the 14th in 1981,
2: which is a Friday the 13th par- Not really a parody. Like in name, it's a parody. But if you've seen it, it's got nothing to do with Friday the 13th. <laughs> um, but it does have Jeffrey Tambor as a vampire. <laughs> and it got a sequel in 1988. 87, we had the Lost Boys and the Monster Squad, as well as My Best Friends of Vampire. So 87 was like a big year for comedy vampires. I think uh, the monster squad definitely played a big influence on our, our second breakout movie vampires versus the bronx mm-hmm. 88 had vampires kiss which some people listen as a comedy uh, have you guys seen it
0: yes <laughs> it's steered into my brain because there's this well podcast listeners can't see my face but there's this like really amazing part where nick cage is just like <sighs> And it just pauses, and I just die laughing every time. It's yeah, I think
1: great. That's a super popular <laughs> Nick Cage reaction
2: gif. Right, I, yeah.
1: <laughs> it seems like he does it in every movie now. Like, there's <laughs> a, a writer in the contract. He's in the new Left Behind movie going, ah! <laughs> Um, I love
2: that movie. I wouldn't call it a comedy, but I get where people are coming from. Again, in the 90s, we have Rockula from 1990, and then Dracula Dead and Loving It* 1995, which is notable because Mel Brooks (laughs) is Van Helsing and Leslie Nielsen is Dracula. Amazing. Um, I have not seen Buffy, but I know both of you are big Buffy fans. So does Buffy qualify as a horror
1: comedy? Lapsed Buffy fan, maybe, but yeah the original movie is definitely mm. played as a much broader comedy than certainly the TV show or any of the other ancillary materials are. It in- involves, I think the longest death scene in, in film history with Paul Rubens. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Am I misremembering it? Do they cut back to him in the end credits and he's still dying?
0: I, that's what I remember that there's even at the end, he's just like, and you're like yeah. Oh, you're, you're still dead like
2: so yeah. okay <laughs> the 2000s I couldn't find any other than Twilight parodies and it does leave me the questions I haven't seen or read Twilight is Twilight funny
1: no um, intentionally uh, no, no. I, or even really unintentionally like you're wincing more than laughing mm-hmm. it's so earnest that I can't imagine someone finding a good faith well of humor in there
0: yeah it's more cringy than anything, which I think some people find funny, but uh, I'd say no. Pass on
2: that one. So the 90s and the 2000s were big for other kinds of vampires. And I think we see the reaction to that in the the 2010s, starting Mm -hmm. with Vamps from 2012, where Kristen Ritter and Alicia Silverstone are vampires in the city. The film's tagline seems very much to be drawing from sex in the city. Yes. Um, (laughs) Dark Shadows 2012, Tim Burton, surprise, collaborates with Johnny Depp. Um, it might be their first Interesting pairing. Time.
0: Never would have thought about it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> only, only Lovers Left Alive 2013 had uh, Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton as vampires. What We Do in the Shadows 2014 mm-hmm. may be the best one. Uh, Taiki Waititi and Jermaine Clement introduced their vampire mockumentary.
1: It's been like this the whole time, Deacon on dishes, and it still hasn't moved in five years. You're a cool guy, but you're not pulling your weight in the flat. Oh, I'm glad to hear that I'm cool.
2: Which is hysterical and is later adapted into the Phenomenal series, which I'll hit on in a little second. Therapy for a Vampire from Australia in 2014, also a vampire comedy. Vidar the Vampire from 2017 is one of my favorites. Um, the vampire is turned, Vidar is turned by a vampire named Jesus with <laughs> oral sex. Um, oh. He bites him on the penis and turns him into a vampire. And it is one of the most blasphemous movies I've ever seen really hey. funny. 2019, the What We Do in the Shadows show started. And I'll always just talk about the
1: Jackie Daytona episode of that show is the funniest thing I've ever seen. We have not laughed in my house louder than the what we do in the Shadows episode where they go to Vegas and the guy gets decapitated <laughs> at the end. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I really like
2: mean humor. I think that was that guy getting his head bunched off was something else. It was. Let <laughs> we get to the 2020s. Up. Vampires versus the Bronx in 2020, which is our second breakout film. Boys from County Hell 2020, which is an Irish vampire comedy, mm-hmm. um, and then Jacob's Wife 2021, which we talked about in our sexy vampires episode.
0: And that brings us to our first breakout film: Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1948. <laughs>
2: Sleeps in this coffin that
1: rises every night at sunset. Chick is right. This is awful
0: silly stuff. The synopsis for this is pretty straightforward. So, Bud Abbott stars as Chick Young. He's kind of like a jerky friend and mailman. Wilbur Gray, who's played by luke Costello. And the premise is Dracula is in need of a worthy brain for Frankenstein to revive him. And he really wants to take Wilbur's, particularly because he doesn't think Wilbur is that smart and would be easy to convince to get his brain. Lawrence Talbot, AKA the Wolfman shows up and tries to convince Wilbur to stay clear of everything. Of course, nobody listens and hijinks ensue. So this film is pretty, uh, pretty relevant, because as Ryan already mentioned, after this first Abbott and Costello meets monster film started, it spawned off nine sequels, uh, including the really bonkers Abbott and Costello meet Boris Karloff, <laughs> which is a very strange movie.
1: <laughs> the <laughs> and killer, and like, the palm, killer uh, Boris Karloff, yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, this is definitely not their first time doing a horror comedy situation. Previously, they did Hold That Ghost, which was basically like Abbott and Costello in a haunted house and riffing off That idea of being around ghosts and not realizing it and uh, just a typical vaudevillian comedy act. This movie was actually the third crossover film for uh, the Universal Horror universe. The first one was 1943's Frankenstein Meets Wolfman. And then after that came the House of Dracula. uh, And then this one debuted and carries some of the plots from Frankenstein Meets Wolfman into it. But a lot of people don't really consider this a part of the bigger umbrella of Universal Horror, particularly because... At this point in the canon, Talbot was cured from his wolfman disease, so him showing up as still the wolfman kind of upsets a lot of fans. So before we get a little bit into it, I would love to hear both of your all opinions. Do you think this counts as a universal horror film, yay or nay, and why?
1: 100% is part of the canon. I would eliminate other movies from the canon um <laughs> uh the, the chief one is son of dracula where lon cheney jr plays count dracula and he's preposterously miscast mm-hmm. at, at in, in that role i think and, and you had posted this on twitter last night the, the question yeah. is it canon is it not and then i started going through all the universal films and coming up with a absolute like saga list that links all the films together starting with nice. the original Dracula film and this is it. This is the Avengers Endgame of the Universal yep. Monsters. Yes. Uh, and it, it, would, it would be as if they did Avengers Endgame, but included Jay and Silent Bob as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but seriously it's so no it's so right. And it's like uh yeah. I think it's so iconic for so many reasons. Uh, I'm a big fan of this movie mm-hmm. mostly because it's the second and only time we see Bella Lugosi play Dracula. And also it's the one time where like the three big like franchise monsters Frankenstein, Wolfman and Dracula share the screen. And that never happens again. So you're totally right. It's like the Avengers Endgame of the universal horror verse. Uh, the fun fact too, is the mummy was supposed to be in there and they ended up nixing it from the script, which I love so I'm just like, how the hell would the mummy come up into this plot line?
1: Well, oh, you got that whole house of horrors thing. You really could have gone endless there. Like, oh, yeah. there's Imhotep.
0: Okay. <laughs> oh man, what do you think, Ryan? Do you
2: think- so, Kat, You said that this was Bella Lugosi's second time playing Dracula? yes
1: technically third
2: technically third
1: there is a there is a missing piece of the puzzle it's not a feature I uh ahead of this week I I read it's a graphic novel called Lugosi the rise and fall of Hollywood's Dracula Mm -hmm. and I was going into it thinking yeah okay he only played it twice in the original Dracula and in this and apparently he played Dracula In a short for Paramount, part of their Hollywood on Parade series, in the short, and I'm not making this up unless I actually hallucinated it, (laughs) Mae Castell, who I believe voiced Betty Boop for much of her career, plays a live-action Betty Boop in a wax museum, does a musical number, a wax figure of Dracula played by Bella Lugosi, comes to life and kills Betty Boop at the end of the short
0: Holy crap how have ne- how have i never seen or heard of this the sounds I ha-
1: I've got a link i'll send it to you it's Oh it- yes You laugh. it's quick it that's why i was like, gonna interject earlier but i'm like no I, I i know where this is coming in but yes mm-hmm. it's the second major time lugosi plays the count and the last i, I don't know if i'd call this an a movie it's it, it has a lot of b movie trappings to it but the mm-hmm. last time he had a real studio paying his bills
0: exactly yeah this was his last
1: you can feel Ed Wood at like the outside of the frames in the movie going like, you done with him yet?
0: (laughs) Uh, So this film is directed by Charles Barton, who also brought Dennis the Menace series to life. And there's definitely a bunch of, yeah, it's not, it's not so, but once you think of it, you're like, Oh, of course. And my other fun fact about it was the, the animation scenes that start off the film. And I guess there's some light animation in it at other points, the same person that did Woody, the woodpecker, television show and that animation actually did this one which I also thought was kind of cool to think about <laughs> so what did we all think of the film do we think that it holds up does the comedy hold up
2: I loved it my second time watching it and I watched the first time like last year maybe around Halloween yeah I think Costello is hysterical and his reactions mm. to stuff um, his physical comedy is excellent so even if the the writing doesn't always hold up
1: mm-hmm. just,
2: he's great I would watch him in a lot of
1: stuff
0: Yeah. What did you, I mean, I'm guessing you love it, Mac. (laughs) Is that fair to say?
1: I love it. It, Like it's, it's not my favorite universal horror movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, For that, it's got to be Bride of Frankenstein always Mm -hmm. and forever, but it's easily number two of all of the monster rally films, House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. This one justifies itself the most, I think, oddly enough. There are some big swings in those other monster rallies where it's like, okay, get them in the room somehow. If you do view it as a a larger canon, this takes place sometime later when they've sort of forgotten about the monsters and they're just in a crate somewhere. I think Abbott and Costello as a comedic force are the interesting hybrid between the sublime quality of the Marx Brothers, mm. where it's chaos, but it's it, it's smart stupidity, and the actual stupidity of the Three Stooges. Like mm. Costello, like you said, Ryan, can do the physical bits and can kind of do the more broad comedy, but obviously they're most well-known who's on first, which is pure wordplay yeah. from yeah. beginning to end. The movie has no right to work at all,
0: mm-hmm
1: but it does and that I always love it when a, when a movie is a is a supremely stupid idea on paper but is imminently watchable in the end.
0: And speaking of that, Costello used to well, I don't know how much he would now consider it famously quoted uh, if he was you know still with us, but people always love to say that he said the script of this film was something that his daughter could write better. Uh, so I would love to hear, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. every time you look up this movie, it's like, did you know Costello once said his daughter could write a better script? So it's like, oh God. But do you think the plot of this film holds together as far as the writing aspect of it?
1: When judged against some of the later Universal monster movies, yes. Mm. It, it is flimsy in its, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I don't need it to do a lot. I don't need it to be a intricate house of cards plot working for it it's a joke machine or or even really a gag machine and it serves that purpose perfectly fine
0: there are some points where like it it might drag a little bit for me but then again like i think if you know what you're going into with this film it's just a comedy of errors where you're expecting people to stumble into situations and that's kind of the plot so as long as you know that going in it's such a fun ride
1: yeah Absolutely. And Lugosi, I mean, not only is it the last time a studio backed about, I think it's the last time he was really present for a film.
2: Like mm-hmm.
1: he, he's a little older, he's a little rougher around the edges, certainly than he was in Dracula, mm-hmm. but he's re- he he gets that this is maybe his last chance and he's really swinging for the fences on this. So it, it, it's great to see him one last time out, outside of just a curiosity like plan nine or bride of the monster or anything mm-hmm. else he did later on.
0: Yeah. So since we are talking about funny vampires, how much of Legosi's performance do we think was wrapped up in like the physicality of just being funny? Uh, I, I love the scene when we first yeah. see him and there's like the big cape coming over and he's making such an exaggerated gesture. They has to have the cape up at all times. And is just walking around with the cape on his nose. But I know that in Ryan's notes (laughs) thinks that Bella Lugosi was playing it straight the whole time and just was leaning into that sort of like as the straight man to make it funny.
2: I think there may have been some wink in it, but I don't think like if you watch Dracula and this, which we, we did in the last month or two, I don't think he's playing it significantly different. I think the comedy comes from Costello and Abbott's reactions to Dracula not what Dracula is actually doing and just everyone
1: else's reactions to Dracula and Frankenstein and the wolf man. I agree. Mostly I would say the scene where he's approaching being arch about it Mm -hmm. is that opening scene where he's, getting mm-hmm. out of the coffin for the first time. There are occasionally looks where he's a little more wry than he he might normally be. But other than that, I agree, he is absolutely the straight man in this, which is, I think, a very classic, com- uh, certainly comedy of this era con- era construction. I yeah. mean, you talk about the straight man, that's obvious, but th- yeah. th- there are the lead guys who are just goofballs to the nth degree. And there's the Margaret Dumont character like, well, I never. And, and he's <laughs> there to... To pull that off. And, and I think he does that well. I think he even went, uh, he gave an interview at some point that he was pleased that the movie wasn't really poking fun at Dracula. Dracula mm-hmm. could maintain his dignity and it just happens to be like, there's a comedy around him and he is still him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of the, he's kind of the abbot of all the monsters in this film. He's the one that's just like setting up the, setting up the bit and then seeing how, how it flies. So on that note, of the big universal monster characters that we see, who is your favorite in this one and why?
1: No disrespect to Glenn Strange, because he played he played the the role of the monster the most, I think, out of anybody in in the most amount of films. But it would have been nice to see Karloff play the monster as well. That would have put this level like then you got all three in their original form for the only time. So that's what kind of knocks down the monster for me, especially because he meets an end when it's clearly a dummy falling through that pier.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely a dummy in real fire. I remember like looking to my partner, I was like, remember when they couldn't fake fire and they just set like stuff on fire on set? So I'm like, it's fine. We'll just burn a bridge.
1: Like it's clearly a dummy. So you see through the illusion, but then I'm thinking like, okay, there's somebody under that Appear on fire, making the dummy like they're drowning, and if they get up, they're gonna be on fire. Like that—that's what prop work was in, in, in the forties. Yeah. You know, I think we got so much of Cheney as Talbot that it, it's a little—I don't know if it's his best performance—is that, but Dracula, like Lugosi as Dracula, is is a treat, and that's where I'm gonna go for.
2: Yeah, exactly the same. I think Legosi is phenomenal as Dracula. Cass, which one was your favorite?
0: Man, I will say I did feel bad for the monster. I don't think he was my favorite, but (laughs) I did laugh that like after all the times that Frankenstein has been attacked and like killed and and whatnot, that all it takes to bring him back to life is just like a little zap on his neck, like two zaps on his neck and then the monster like a little zap on his forehead and then it's like, poof, uh,
2: movie magic. Magical or electric? I have a lot of questions Mm. because that ring was so small and batteries are notably very big in the 40s in a ring in (laughs) the 40s yeah Yeah, i don't know that they had like pocket watch batteries i'm not an expert in history but uh what was up with that ring uh
0: i don't know i thought it was i I did think it was a magic electrical current ring from dracula i guess
1: if if i'm remembering and i want to say it's either son of frankenstein or ghost of frankenstein correctly they go into it's not necessarily just electricity that is keeping mm-hmm. the monster alive. It's There's some particle or something that, that is is giving him life that can be found in lightning. So it could oh. be sort of magically contained within the ring. I invite the internet to correct me at, at their glee and leisure, but <laughs> I, I'm having a vague memory that there is like electricity plus that yeah. is, is what gives the Frankenstein monster life and that that theoretically could be contained in a ring.
0: This just makes it even more of an Avengers film when I think about it now. Yeah. And since this is like one of the, I guess, most iconic monster crossover movies. Do we think Because I would call this effort successful. I don't know what Universal Pictures thought of it going in, but it ended up being like their second highest grossing film in the year that came out. And it jumpstarted so many crossover monster films after that with Evan Kinsella and all that jazz. Do we think there's been a monster slash horror crossover film that's
1: worked since then? Monster Squad, I think, has its charms. Mm -hmm. Um, Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman does not.
2: (laughs) Godzilla versus Kong. If you want Ooh. to call it horror, I think it was mm. very successful and a lot of fun.
1: Yeah,
0: I even brought in Mothra too.
2: And that was directed by uh, Adam Wingard from Your Next, and Your mm. Next is just a phenomenal film.
0: Yeah, that one is really really good.
2: Okay, there are okay. a couple of uh, never made crossovers that were rumored. Mm. I think I can't remember if it was Ash versus the Cenobites, like Ash from The Evil Dead versus the Cenobites from Hellraiser. Yep, I think was teased at some point as well as I think the Cenobites versus Jason.
0: Yeah. And they're also is supposed to be a Freddy versus the Cenobites at some point. Cause there was a time where they really wanted to make a Freddy crossover film and they were just going through like who, who could be the big bad against them. And it just happened that Jason's time was up. And I forget the reason why I think it had to do with the rights issues circling around the yeah. property. And that's yeah. why they ended up doing Jason.
1: The, uh, a Michael Myers versus the Cenobites got Very far along in the development process when both of those properties were under dimension. Oh, sweet. But I think cooler heads prevailed. Uh, There's a great book about the lost... In development Halloween movies, mm. uh, it, it's the sit, second Taking Shape by Dustin McNeil and Travis Mullins. It's very, uh, I, I enjoyed both of the books immensely. The first one deals with the actual the movies that were actually made, and the second one deals with all of the Michael Myers movies that didn't get made. Again, I, I mentioned Jay and Silent Bob earlier. There was a I don't know how serious it became, but I believe the Weinstein's did approach Kevin Smith at one point and said, "Okay, so we've got." michael myers we've got hellraiser mm. and there was a few other horror properties maybe i want to say Wishmaster, maybe maybe mm. candy man mm. was under their umbrella at that point we want to do a month we want to do jay and silent bob versus the monsters and uh, i don't think it got anything beyond that pitch <laughs> i think the, the story kevin smith i heard him tell one time is they mentioned that to ben affleck and ben affleck said quote that's just fucking stupid enough to work and i was like well if there's one thing Ben Affleck knows, it is stupid enough to almost work, so. Very true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, be- it's better to want something like that than to actually have it.
2: Yeah, I yeah. think that's true. A lot of these, they, they sound cool. Like Jason versus the Cenobites sounds like it would be cool, but I think in reality, it would not actually make a good movie in the same way Freddy versus Jason sounds really cool, but then it's like not really even a fight when you see the movie.
1: There's no time to care about those kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I yeah, I think especially when you're talking about slasher movies, there are so many, I mean, really in movies in general, like there's an idea and like just a poster or a, or a trailer and you're like, "Oh god, that looks so great," but then it has to be packaged into the finite confines of an actual movie and can only yeah. reach so far. So Aliens versus Predators also exists.
0: Oh gosh, yes. yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, twice. I love it. Twice. Twice. <laughs> Once was wasn't enough. <laughs> no. Whoever wins, we lose. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> I have
2: one question. Go Do you prefer funny or scary universal?
1: I, I, want, for- I, I want both at hmm. the same time. Yeah. I think like Brian Frankenstein, which I've mentioned is my favorite, is it's not a comedy like an Abbott and Costello movie, but it, it is very amusing all throughout. And I think those are the best of those movies when they can do both. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think for me, I think sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally the universal horror films are funny to me. So I guess to me, it just I think, I think I'm starting with backwards and not really. I prefer one of the others so much as I get extra happy when the humor is intentional. And then sometimes when I find something funny that I know was not intentional, it makes me a little sad, but overall, I enjoy all the experiences that universal heart
1: has to offer. Here, here, Mm -hmm. like even the, even the universal movie monster movies, I don't enjoy necessarily. I've never, I haven't had a bad time watching. I'm like, Oh, this isn't (laughs) as good as some of the others, but I can think of a lot of worse ways to spend an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes only like 65 minutes because some of them were real short.
0: What's poppin', y'all? It's your girl Gloria coming at you live. If you see a kid that's riding a bike two sizes too big for him, that's his little man trying to save the neighborhood. And speaking of saving the neighborhood, what's up with all these missing person flyers?
1: Yo, check out the courthouse. They're turning it into apartments? Y'all know how this starts. Them white people with canvas bags?
2: Vampires of the Bronx from 2020. A Netflix production. It's the story of three teenage boys, Miguel, aka Little Mayor, played by Jaden Michael, Bobby, played by Gerald W. Jones III, and Luis, played by Gregory Diaz IV, and they're trying to save the bodega of their adult friend Tony, played by uh, the kid Miro, from a gentrifying neighborhood. Murnaud Properties is buying up all the business in the area, with Frank Pagliadori, played by Shea Wiggum, leading the business. It's directed by Oz Rodriguez from a screenplay by himself and Blaze Hemingway from a story by Rodriguez. Blaze, if anyone's wondering, to my knowledge and Googling, is not related to Ernest Hemingway. (laughs) Um, And it's Rodriguez's second film. He co-directed one called Brother Nature, but he's directed a ton of comedy shorts and TV episodes, including SNL and AP Bio.
1: To start with the the softball questions. Do you all like the movie? Loved it.
2: Super
0: fun.
1: Yeah. Wasn't on my radar at all. And I think when you mentioned that was a movie we were going to watch for this, I was like, Oh God, I got to go track down a DVD of something. And then I was like, wait, it's on Netflix. Yay. <laughs> I think that's one of the the side effects. We have like, Netflix has got to put out
2: at least two movies a week, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And so it's easy to miss like a good one. Just have it slide by because it's not just Netflix who is doing this too. And uh, mm-hmm. Shudders has a movie a week going on and uh, yeah, there's just, uh, whole time. I feel like we're in an era of digital pulp, which is awesome because we have so much cool stuff coming out.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But back to the movie. The film takes the names of classic vampire lore. Marno from the director of Nosferatu, a film we're hopping into next month. And Polly Adori from Lord Byron's Doctor and the writer of the vampire. Do you all feel like this name dropping works in this movie? Does
1: it add to the movie? I think it, as long as it's background, it's good. Like if they if they really stopped the movie for any length of time to try to build a mythology around these vampires, it could have slowed things down, but it's yeah. there for people like us who would get those references. And it's incidental to anyone else.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think the one that they lean into the most is obviously uh blade Wesley Snipes iconic oh, yeah. vampire role. And I think what made me so happy about that one is it made perfect sense for these like three kids of a certain age, that are a bit nerdy and geeky, to be obsessed with with a vampire movie that uh, is iconic and a cult classic, and that they'd want to break down and use this as a way to learn about the world because that's exactly what nerdy and geeky kids do.
1: It almost has a spiritual sisterhood to Shaun of the Dead*. Yeah, uh, in that it 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 t- it's taking the threat of the re- the danger seriously, but the characters themselves have watched these movies and have an awareness. And so it's that interesting fusion of a legitimate vampire movie populated by characters who have seen vampire movies.
2: Mm-hmm. Where do you feel like the humor is coming from? Is it the characters, the vampires?
0: Oh, there's so many good comedy bits in it. Cause like some of it is situational irony, right. Of like, and, and dramatic irony. Like sometimes, you know, we know as the audience, what's going to happen before the characters themselves do, which makes it funny, but there's also so many good little bits. Like. For a film that's largely about gentrification, one of my favorite bits is when, I believe it's Miguel goes into the bodega and he tries oat milk for what I think is the first time based (laughs) on his reaction. And he's just like, what is this bullshit? And I just died laughing because it's just like, what a loving detail to be um, talking about, you know, white entitlement moving into this area and bringing with them something like oat milk. (laughs) So that's my stab. What What do you think back? What are the comedic bits in here that make it funny? And like, why does it work?
1: Yeah, you know, I, 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 to contrast it with Abbott and Costello, there isn't a moment where it becomes an arch comedy film. Like mm-hmm. it, it's not the comedy itself is very real. It's situational. The, the kid who's trying to be more macho than he is, and his mother screams down <laughs> at him uh, from from the windows. I think the the archest comic bit is toward the end when the two people are just walking through mm-hmm. the encounter between the neighborhood and the vampires <laughs> and, and, start, and and start negging the vampires. And I'm like, that it's not my experience, but I can see how that's a very real experience. It's somebody who maybe lived in the Bronx or has a neighborhood like that saw that. I know those two. those, those two people I know in my neighborhood are in the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can elicit that kind of a response itself.
0: Mm-hmm. How about you, Ryan?
2: I think the the stores are my favorite bit. I think there's two. There's one where like the, there's two guys talking and one of them's like, place is called I think Bone and Thread. And they're like, what does this store do? Oh yeah. (laughs)
0: They're like, is it a restaurant?
2: (laughs) That one cracks me up because I feel like I've been there. I've like been at a mall or something or like driven through my town and said like, there's a place. I see the name. I look at it. I look at the storefront. What is it? I don't know. Check their website. I still don't know what it is i find that very funny and there's one where they had a a store for just butter and it was small batches of butter and they didn't say no one commented just like on the wall just small batch butter and they had like the sizes of butter you could
1: buy reminds me of the gag in uh i think it was unbreakable kimmy schmidt where uh the rich guy comes over and he's got the artisanal uh, ice cubes in like the, <laughs> the 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 elegant packaging and, I I just like I'm a, I'm very particular about ice and drinks. So I looked at those ice cubes and I'm like, oh, I want that ice. And now if somebody's really particular about butter, yes, there's those absurd yeah. businesses. But I'm like, go on, tell me more about what I'm not doing right with butter. So they can they can get me. It just they, they got to find the right combination. Yeah, yeah. So Cass, you mentioned the movies about gentrification,
2: which I mm-hmm. think I think it's stated outright in the film, basically.
0: Yeah. I think it wears um, on its sleeve. I would agree.
1: how do y'all feel like it handled it? I, I think it's great because I don't, I, and somebody can correct me, I don't think it's really been done in a vampire context because you go mm-hmm. back to the original Dracula text and, and a lot of the uh, interpretations of it, there is a, uh, a theme running throughout of the foreigner coming in and wow. manipulating real estate to invade Western culture. And now that's turned on its side in this, and I it seems so obvious a turn that there hasn't been a vampire movie about gentrification is sort of surprising because it, it, it seems like it's right there,
0: yeah. 100%. I think that for the longest time in genre like films and books and, and whatnot, vampires are always synonymous with the other, and like the, and in, in some interpretations like the more marginalized being, and then other times the fear of the foreigner. So it, it's so interesting to have that flipped on its head and then to be so upfront about it too. Like we haven't gone into it too much, but I love how the vampires themselves are so chalky white. Like they're the whitest yeah. of white. <laughs> they have blonde hair. It's they, It's very, very much being clear that like any vampire we see is, is white. It's interesting how they bring that in to the real estate plotline in a very naturalistic way. My favorite part in the movie is when Miguel's mom is talking to Miguel and Miguel's just like, but I think these real estate people are evil. And She's just like, "Uh, duh, they're in real estate. Like, obviously they're evil, like not a question. And that's just like a deadpan funny moment, but it's also how the film handles this topic where it's like from the get go, it's like, yeah, white people are moving in, like making our rent super high, pushing us out. We either going to get a check and move on out of here, or we're going to have to Buy oat milk for a bodega because we have to survive. This is very weird. And, like, that's just, it's t- handles that material, I think, very straight, even when there's like smaller funny bits. So, I think in my mind, it really works.
2: Something you said actually made me think of something else. So, Frank Pagliadori is Italian, right? So, Pagliadori, an Italian name? I, think, yeah, sounds like it. Do you think that's why they won't turn him?
0: Oh, I just thought it was because
2: hmm. they are. That's a, that's a good question. That's a good question
0: they're very waspy. So I, you know what? I never thought of it before, but I think that's a good point. I mean, I I guess I came from it more from the perspective as I thought that the reason why they wouldn't turn him was because they wanted to show that people that are in power, like to keep control of wielding power, especially like the power of white privilege and that they wouldn't share it very easily, even with someone that is helping them. And I thought that it was just really to drive that point home more, but you're right. Like,
1: I agree. How'd y'all like the vampire
2: character designs? I feel like it's like half Blade, half Buffy.
1: I would say 75, 25 in favor of Buffy. Um, yeah. I mean, Maybe I was a little underwhelmed with the vampire design because it seems so reminiscent of certainly the TV show Buffy. Mm. But that's, I mean, how much more can you do with vampire design than what's already yeah. been done?
0: I will say that I really, I, I don't know why, but I have such a fascination for when vampires have like very long fingernails. I just think it's so, it's just so creepy because it just makes me think of corpses and how, you know, like after after you, you know, move on and die, your nails for a short time period or so, they just keep on growing. Uh, and so it just, it just makes that undeadish element, like cooler for me. So I did like that choice. But I think as far as everything else goes, I was like, eh, I feel like there was more love and attention handed in other parts of the movie, but not necessarily the vampire design.
1: Yeah. Also reminiscent of uh, Max Shrek and uh, Nosferatu, the, the oh. long fingers and yeah.
2: I agree with you guys. Um, I feel like the monster is a metaphor here. Mm. I think that very obviously the monsters are a metaphor for, for gentrification. And I think when you have that working for you, you don't need the monster to be like over the top good because the point is the metaphor. If the monster is too cool, it starts to distract from the point of the movie. And pun intended, this is a vampire movie with teeth. <laughs> it's got some incisive commentary. <laughs> um, okay, I right. thought it sucked. No. <laughs> the other thing about this movie, it's got a great ensemble cast. Do you guys mm-hmm. have favorite characters or
1: performances you wanna wanna highlight? I thought Jaden Michael was so charming as the kid. And I thought mm. I thought, wow, if they do get around to a live action Miles Morales. Oh God, oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he 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 is like that's his audition tape. He's ready to oh, go.
0: Yeah. Oh, little man would be such a good Miles Morales. He has that yes. energy.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I really like Tony, the bodega owner. I just, I just loved his vibes. It made me, um, have you seen In the Heights? Definitely not a horror, well, I guess maybe you can consider it a horror, horror movie, but it's uh, the musical by mm-hmm. Lin- Manuel Miranda. Yeah,
2: I've not seen
0: it. Okay. So it's also a film about gentrification and it's also centered around like the the loss, potential loss of the bodega and what it would mean to the community. handles it in a very different ways. A lot more dancing, no vampires, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it just, it just remind me of that in a really great way and i think tony is just so fun i love that he's looking out for these kiddos
2: i think i really loved uh method man as the angry priest <laughs> oh, yeah. um, just because he was method man um <laughs> playing a priest that that really worked for me um, i think everyone was great as y'all noticed that zoe saldana was in the opening yeah so yeah I think both times i watched it i looked at the cast and i saw zoe saldana i was like wait who is she and i had to go back I was like oh the opening she's in the opening she was great
0: big death big name big death
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. A big name, big death in the opening few minutes. That's the, Mm -hmm. the psycho scream uh, play. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: How do y'all think vampire
2: horror has evolved over the last 80 years or so? And is it like the same as regular
1: comedy's evolution or is it a different animal? I, I would say that it, it, it definitely evolves along with comedy because at its core, you've got a couple of things. One, the, the vampire mythology is on its face sort of preposterous. It's just yeah. weird rules upon weird rules to the point where it's just ad absurdum. And and yeah. right there, you have you almost have a character built or a, a type of character built out of non sequiturs. It's like, he can't go out in the day. Also, he drinks blood. Also, he can be a bat, but also maybe a wolf. But also... <laughs> Um, it's just a, a cascade of absurdity. But also the vampire beginning with Dracula is the fish out of water. He is the the foreign cousin come to visit, and his strange ways are not our ways, and that is a, perhaps hoary a bit, but uh, very classic construction of comedy.
2: Yeah. I love what you say about rules. I think horror and comedy are both based on breaking rules. Mm. And it's having all of those ridiculous rules with vampires, I think, makes it... I'm surprised there aren't more vampire comedy films.
0: Yeah. I don't know if there's necessarily a common thread. I mean, I'm willing to bet that we're all right in, in the idea that as com- comedy changes and, and what we find comedic, how vampires fit into that would also change. Like, that makes sense. I don't know. I can't find a common thread for me personally, but I think I'm thinking a lot about like, why is what we do in the shadows so successful? Why do people love it so much and so deeply? Like, what is that doing that is like so timely for us now? Honestly, I think it just might be the absurdity is where vampire comedies are sort of at now, at least currently. There's not too, too many of them out there, but at least with that one specifically.
1: What we do in the shadows, I think it also f- follows the trend in comedy that the The idea of hell is other people like there's yeah. so much comedy now where the comedy is you are stuck with these people this can be the family comedy the workplace comedy what have you yeah. you're stuck with these people and how ridiculous is that and that what we do in the shadows is both a workplace comedy and a family comedy and mm-hmm. a mockumentary comedy all wrapped into one yeah yeah
0: and it was kind of it's almost like what you were saying earlier about the rules. I think for what we do in the shadows, a lot of the humor comes from the societal rules it's poking fun at. Like in a lot of ways, the rules of the vampires are more straightforward and logical, obviously because the characters presented that way too. But a lot of the times when they're having issues with, you know, mundane human tasks, it is, it is kind of absurd. Like they're yeah. with like, what is laundry? What is email? And then breaking down those things of society. Uh, I think that's a lot of the place where the humor lives. So maybe the vampire gets this fun role of shining light on how like being normal and doing the things you're supposed to do is kind of weird and boring and a lot more stranger than say drinking blood.
1: <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> the absurd rules of vampires pales in comparison to the absurd rules of our modern existence yeah fun fact about what we do
2: in the shadows I was like just perusing like lists of best vampire movies uh, Mm -hmm. a couple months ago there is a vampire movie called Nadja
0: oh Um, my god
2: (laughs) it's from the 90s it's like black and white and super serious and the character Nadja is absolutely taken from that movie like just like cut out of frame and put into it it's worth watching just for that it's not supposed to be funny but if you've seen what we do in the shadows it becomes very funny
0: (laughs) Sweet. Is there anything else about vampire comedies that we didn't cover or that you're like thinking about now that you're like, huh?
1: No, we covered a lot of ground. I'd encourage you to watch uh, Bella Lugosi kill Betty Boop on screen. I sent you that link. <laughs> yes.
0: Put it in the show notes. I need to see it. That's got to be <laughs> yeah. on
1: the show notes. we read that. Awesome.
0: Well, before we get going, we have some plugs to do. So Ryan C. Bradley has the book coming out. Hey, hey.
2: <laughs> so uh, when this drops, uh, the book is not out yet. When this drops, the book will be out. My book, Saint's Blood, it's a horror novella about a man who's kidnapped
1: and then has his blood harvested.
0: And also, Mac always has a hundred things coming out. But oh, what would geez. you like to plug?
1: <laughs> um, at the recording time, but it'll have been old news by the time this posts. Uh, my latest novel, The Once and Future Orson Welles, is available uh, in paperback and ebook formats. It involves Orson Welles, Dennis Hopper, George Lucas. Warren Beatty and Peter Bogdanovich hunting for the lost sword of King Arthur in the early 1970s. <laughs> and that concludes my series of uh, books about Orson Welles, including The Devil Lives in Beverly Hills, which involves him and Charlie Chaplin fighting a eldritch demon in the early 50s. And Orson Welles of Mars, which naturally deals with the War of the Worlds broadcast (laughs) Other things at PartyApocalypse.com, a podcast I mentioned at the top of the show The Fourth Wall is uh, a radio play we did over a couple of years Two seasons of six episodes each and a Christmas special The first season, the big bad, is Dracula and deals with his domestic woes so it feels right on topic with our show. Uh, uh, Ryan C. Bradley yes. himself was a recurring character in the second I season. was.
0: Whoa. Yeah. Cross promotion. So, right.
1: That's available in, in its entirety on partyapocalypse.com, which is my website. And you can find me on Twitter at Party Apocalypse. At Party Apocalypse. I think that's it. <laughs>
0: Well, that's about it on sinking our teeth into vampire comedy. Whoa!
1: I see what you did there.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you, Mac, for being a guest, and we'd love to have you on again in the future. This was a ton of fun. You're a wealth of knowledge. You're great. Did you
2: say it was fantastic. Oh
0: my god, mine was better.
2: <laughs> Yours was way better. You it mine out and post.
0: <laughs> no, I'm keeping that in there. Shame, shame, and Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> back.